So we've got this, this final talk. Some of you have been with us all the way through this Alpha course. And what we're doing tonight is I'm just kind of wrapping the Alpha course up with uh, answering some questions that I think are important. The last talk that I gave on the retreat, some of you heard when I was there, I, I, uh, we, we referenced the, the parable that Jesus tells where he talks about the four soils, where he's scattering the seed. And the three, the first three that he talks about are people who hear the word of God and their faith does not grow. So in three of the four cases, he says, these are people who at some level have some, you know, they're around God's word. They are around sort of, you know, what God wants for their lives. And for different reasons, they don't, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. The seed doesn't grow. It doesn't go anywhere. Their faith doesn't grow. And um, so I, I, I shared that in order to, to encourage you to you know, know that, that there are some things that you need to do to see to it that your faith grows. And so uh, this is a continuation of that. Uh, I've got four points to make tonight. They're, they're related, but a little bit kind of scattered. They're just four things that I think are important for you to know as you move forward in your faith. The first one is this. Christianity is not a piece of the pie it's the crust that holds the pie together. So I'm using an analogy, and I'm sort of jump, going to jump around with analogies here, actually. So sometimes people have this idea of like, yeah, I, my faith is an important part of my life. It's like if I imagine that my life is, is like a pie, I'll, I'll give, you know, a sizable piece of that pie to my faith. And that's not really what, uh, how it's intended to work. Rather, the, the Christianity should be, should, your faith should be seen as that crust that sort of holds the whole pie together and everything kind of builds from that up. You could also use the analogy of, um, it, it, it's, it's like a way of seeing the world. So like, it's like a, a pair of, like somebody who, who can't see very well and then someone gives them glasses and now when they look through those glasses, it changes how they view and it changes the, the world so that, so that they see the world the way it was intended to be seen. So it's not just supposed to be like, yeah, 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 I'll go to Shig or I'll you know, do that kind of religious thing and kind of check that box. Rather, God says, I want, I want to put myself at the center of your life. And when I do that, he says to you, everything changes and everything changes for the better. But it does, it does take us sort of understanding that it's not just that God sort of wants, uh, wants you to give him a little bit and, 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 then, and then he'll leave you alone. He wants to start from the ground up and build something actually better than you could possibly imagine. There's a, a quote that I love from this author. Uh, her name's Anne Lamott. She quotes another author who has this analogy. She said, my friend once said that when you ask God into your life, you think he's going to come into your kind of house, look around, see that you just need a new floor or better furniture and that everything needs just a little cleaning. And so you go along for the first six months thinking how nice life is now that God is there. Then you look out the window one day and see that there's a wrecking ball outside. Turns out that God actually thinks your whole foundation is shot and you're going to have to start over from scratch. That can be scary sometimes. Like even as I share this story, you might be like, wait, what now? What are you talking about? I thought this is just like a nice little thing I was going to add to my life. What God says is that for, it to, for, for life with him to work properly, we have to sort of say, I'm going to start with you at the center of everything and build up from there. And when you do that, what I can promise you is, when you sort of start living your life with God at the center of everything that happens, 
the, the, the house that gets built after you agree to kind of tear down the house that you're building is the best house you could possibly imagine. The life that you get when you surrender your life to God is better than you could have built for yourself. I was watching a, a movie last night, actually, about a man who got everything he could have possibly wanted in life. He wanted to be a famous chef. Well, first he wanted to, to like, Fall, he, he had this girl he was in, in love with, and he kind of was, all, was in love with her, in love with her, in love with her. It's a true story. It's a documentary. And she finally was like, okay, I'll date you. They get married. He gets exactly what he wanted. He gets the, the woman of his dreams, right? And then he's like, I've always wanted to be a chef. And what happens? He becomes the most famous chef in the world for a time. Like he was in, in Chicago. There was, he was in Chicago. It was downtown. For about 20 years, there was no one more famous. There was no one more successful than this person. He got everything he wanted. And what ended up happening after that is, well, he got divorced from his wife because all of a sudden he didn't realize, he realized that he didn't need her anymore because it was the restaurant that made him, hurt him happy. And then somebody else came along and, you know, built a better restaurant than him. And he ended up actually having health problems. He didn't like going to the doctor. And he ended up dying about 10 years ago. Like, just this tragic, like, oh, he had everything he could possibly want when he lived life the way he wanted to live it. And, but he wasn't actually happy. And he actually died pretty sad uh, at the end of his life. Three failed marriages, um, kind of bitter, sort of wondering, you know, what was next for him. Um, I think about that when I think about somebody who, like, you know, had literally was at the top of the world, and it didn't, it didn't do it. It wasn't enough. So Jesus says, trust me and see what I will do. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Sin doesn't change our position with God, but it hurts our relationship with him, which threatens our position. It's confusing. I think I can explain it. So you can, you can, uh, we're going to read from Colossians 1. You can turn there uh, as well if you want, if you have a Bible or if you want to look it up on your phone. But Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. Here is what Paul is saying about us. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This verse is going to continue in a minute, and it's very important what happens at the very next verse, but we're going to stop right there. This is the incredible, great news of the gospel, that we were enemies of God. We were alienated from God, and the great news is that Jesus came along and made us right with him. So he changed our position from being enemies of God to being friends of God. That's what Jesus did when he died for us on the cross. And um, when, no matter what happens, the Bible says that, that, that is true and that happened. Uh, and we are positionally, like our position changed from being enemies to being uh, friends with God. But when we sin, something happens. There's two kinds of sin. Uh, you could you know, break it down other ways. But there is repentant sin and unrepentant sins. Repentant sin is when you're like, I know that I keep doing this thing that breaks, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the relationship with God or other people, and I, I hate it, and I don't want to do it anymore. That's repentant sin. Then there's unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin is, yeah, I do that thing, 
and I don't really care. Uh, I know I probably should stop, but I'm not going to stop. Repentance sin is something that everyone, like that's just an ongoing thing, and, and God wants us to, to always be uh, repenting. When we are in unrepentant sin, when we're like, no, I don't care, I'm not going to stop, it puts up a barrier between ourselves and God. It actually blocks us from him. Now, our position hasn't changed. God is still wants to be with us. But when we put up this block, which is what sin is, sin, sin is a barrier between relationships. It is something that we do to keep God away from us. Sometimes things will happen in, our, in, in lives. I will talk to students who will say, I just don't, I don't experience God. I don't, I don't feel God. What, what God left. And in some of those situations, this, the person is, uh, is actively doing something that God knows, that you know, they know that God doesn't want them to do. It's like, if we go back to the glasses analogy, it's like taking glasses that are supposed to improve our vision and rubbing them in mud and putting them on and saying, where did God go? I can't see God anymore. Well, the Bible says the pure in heart will see God, right? So it's not that God has moved. God hasn't changed. God hasn't done anything. God hasn't moved. But when we uh, have this unrepentant sin in our lives that blocks us from God, it's this, it's this barrier. Your sin puts up a barrier between you and God. And that's not going to change until you repent. It's kind of like washing the mud off of those glasses. So, and this is what's important because the next part of the verse, right? So verse 21, you are alienated from God. He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Verse 23 says this, if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you, you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It says, if you continue. Now that, that's a verse that I, I that's, that is, that's something that I have to pay attention to. I think we all have to pay attention to. Those three words, if you continue. To hold on to the hope. Does this mean that it's up to us to work really hard for God to love us? No. It just means that we, we have to not give up. We have to not quit. We have to not stop putting barriers up by our own sin, which then over time, if we put these barriers of sin between us and God, if we don't continue in our faith, what's going to happen? God doesn't leave, but we, we step away quiet steps that we take away from God as we turn away from our trying to be faithful. He never, he never leaves. But it says we have to continue in the faith in order for us to experience and enjoy the relationship. All right, that's number two. Point number three is this, and it's related. If you're asking, why do I have to worry about sin if I'm still forgiven? It means you haven't really experienced the love that God has for you. So, in other words, I will, you'll hear people all the time, young people, old people, you'll hear this question. Well, if, if God's forgiven me for my sins, like if, if, if whatever I do, God forgives me, then why do I have to stop sinning? Can't I just do anything I want and God has to forgive me? It is, I get that it's logical. And it's, it, 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 there's an analogy that people might use 
when they think about this. They might think, so what you're saying, Siler, is that the Bible says that if I, it's, it's, it's following God is sort of like I get a credit card and I can just go buy whatever I want with that credit card and God's just gonna pay the bill. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Like that's, that's what it sounds like you're saying. Is it because no matter what I've done, I will always be forgiven. I think that's, that's probably the wrong analogy. Um, because, and, and, and we have heard, you've heard people say it. In some ways, it's the church's fault. For you'll hear people say, well, all you have to do, they'll say, all you have to do to, to, to you know, get right with God is to pray this prayer. That's all you have to do. Which is, in one sense, true, and in one sense, it's not really true. Because life with God is so much more than just a one-time decision. It's about turning your life completely and fully over to God when you are ready to do that. So, um, I don't know about you, but if someone gave me a credit card that would always get paid off, no matter what, no matter how many times I, you know, I, I charged it over and over and over again, if I was lucky enough to get through for Taylor Swift tickets, which I wasn't, but if I was, and I saw those $799, you know, and I was just like, boom, yes, and I, I, I would just keep, keep on charging, keep on charging. That's, that's what I would do. Um, but that's actually not the right analogy for our relationship with God. And Paul actually addressed this 2,000 years ago in Romans 6. If you want to, you can turn to Romans 6, but I'm going to read it for you here. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He was addressing this common question too. It's like, so wait, should, if, if, if more sin means more grace then shouldn't I just sin more and then experience grace more? What does Paul say? He says, by no means. He says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The credit card analogy only works if you think that sinning is the same thing as charging things that you like on a credit card. Those are not the same thing. Because sin, actually, even though there is some, you know, when, when you sin, depending on what it is, it feels good in the moment. But in the long run, it does not lead to fruitful things. I think there's a better analogy. Here's the better analogy. Imagine a guy named John, okay? And uh, a John is somebody who grew up uh, in a rough neighborhood and uh, he had loving parents who did the best that they could, but ultimately he rebelled. And um, John got in with a particularly tough crowd. He joined a gang. He dropped out of high school and he went to start selling drugs. He was in this gang. He was involved in a number of murders this going on for a number of years, and at some point along the way, uh, John realizes he's not crazy about the life he has, but he knows he doesn't really have a choice. This is the life he has. And besides, John knows that the only way out of that gang is a brutal ritual where he would have to get beat up by other gang members within an inch of his life, which is how they deal with people who want to get out. And he knows he doesn't want to deal with that, and so he doesn't do anything. Well, one day... John wakes up, and into the room walks his dad, 
His dad stumbles into the room. He can barely walk. He can barely talk. His, fl- his face is bloody and bruised. He can hardly recognize him. But John's dad says to him, I've rescued you from this gang. I went through the ritual. I endured unspeakable beating so that you didn't have to. I've secured your freedom from the gang. You don't have to live like this anymore. Well, what do you think John's response would be to that? Will his response be that he wants to keep killing people and keep dealing drugs? No. His response will be one of gratefulness. He knows that he has the freedom to go back to his life in the gang, but he doesn't want to ignore the love and the sacrifice that his father showed him. He would be so overcome by gratitude for the love that he was shown that he would want to live a life worthy of that sacrifice and love that he was shown. There's a difference between something that's free and something that's cheap. John's freedom was free, but it wasn't cheap. It came at a price. Likewise, our uh, freedom from sin is free for us, but it wasn't cheap. Jesus paid his life for it. Will God still love us if we go back to the life we had before? Of course he will. If John goes back to the gang, would his dad be willing to show him that love again and again? Of course. But I don't think that's going to happen if John really understands the love that his dad had for him. It it would change him, right? And in the same way, uh, Jesus' love displayed for us on the cross should change us and should change us to understand that sin doesn't ultimately do us any good. And ultimately, when we know that, and when we know that God has the best interest for us, we will want to say yes to him and no to sin. So the last thing I want to say to you uh, is that it's not as much about what you need to do for God. It's about what he wants to do in you. Sometimes you come back from a retreat and you're like, all right, I got to do this. I got to, I got motivated. Uh, there was a retreat that I went on as a, in, when I was in high school, and I, don't re- I didn't remember this until I got out this cross. Everybody got a cross at the end of this, um, and it was, it was on a red string, and it was a, like a silver cross, and it had Jesus on the front, and on the back of it was a, was a message. And the message said, Christ is counting on you. And it didn't hit me when I, when I uh, you know, at the time, uh, what that was sort of insinuating. But if I was voting, I would vote to not have that inscription be what you get at the end of a retreat. Like, it's, all, it's, it's, like, it's like Smokey the Bear. You know, only you can prevent forest fires. You know, like me? It's up to me? I have to t- stop all the forest fires? I can't stop a forest fire, Smokey, you know? Jesus is not counting on you to change the world. Jesus does not, it's not like, well... You know, Drew, it's up to you now. You know, Jesus is counting on you, Drew. You better not screw this up, you know. Now, Drew probably could handle it. But the rest of you, I don't know. I'm kidding. Uh, The gift of grace is a gift, not a burden. Not meant to weigh us down and to go, okay, now it's up to me and now I have to do this. 
And especially early in my Christian life, I, I don't think I quite understood that. I think it was sort of like, I, it's up to me, and I better not mess this up, and I have to do, I had this weight of burden and expectation on me. That's not what uh, Jesus wants from you. He wants to transform you into the kind of person that will live for God. He wants to transform you into the kind of person who says, I don't want to sin anymore because I see how destructive it is. I'm not, I'm not attracted to that way of life anymore. It's not a, it's not a have to. It's that why, why would I do that when there's a better way that Jesus calls me into? He wants us to see the world, have new glasses, to see the world from a brand new perspective and live our lives in a brand new way. It is a whole way of, of seeing the world that's not a burden. It's, it's, there, there's a freedom. It's actually a lifting of a burden. You don't have the pressure. The world pressures you. You've got to make this grade, get into that school. You've got to impress this person. You, you have to, blah, blah, blah. All these have tos. Jesus says, I have something easy for you. Just follow me. Just, just wake up each day and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. Come on this journey with me. And it is not this heavy burden. It is a joy to follow Jesus. Let's pray.